Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Today we speak with Bill Browder, financier and author of the best-selling Freezing Order, a true story of Russian money laundering, state-sponsored murder, and surviving Vladimir Putin's wrath about his personal experiences being in the Kremlin's crosshairs and his views of the best ways to neutralize the Russian president now. We welcome Mariana's Trench frontman Josh Ramsey to chat about his first solo project, The Josh Ramsey Show. 18 tracks, 18 different genres, with the help of some high-profile Canadian guests. Canada's Immigration Minister joins us to provide an update on efforts to help Ukrainians fleeing the war come to this country. But first, May is Lyme Disease Awareness Month, so we find out more about a growing problem in Canada, what causes it, and how to protect yourself against it. Let's start now, though, with um, the weather warming up. People are out again with their pets heading into the great outdoors or out into the great outdoors in greater numbers. It's also a perfect time for a reminder about the risks of tick-borne diseases, including Lyme disease. May, just around the corner now, believe it or not, is Lyme Disease Awareness Month in Canada. And on Sunday, a new doc called The Quiet Killer about Lyme disease will make its debut at the Hot Docs Festival in Toronto. Here's an excerpt of the trailer. As a kid, I was very eager. I was very active. I loved to dance. But those things about me started to change. Even though I knew something was wrong, I never imagined it would be this. Empty meds. Those are all full. This is what life became. There are more cases than HIV and breast cancer combined. Right now my hands are burning. You could do all the right things and get bit by a tech, and it'll change your world forever. An excerpt of a new doc called The Quiet Killer about Lyme disease, which will make its debut at the Hot Docs Festival in Toronto over the weekend. With more on this, I'm joined tonight by Dr. Tara Moriarty, an associate professor at the University of Toronto in the Faculty of Dentistry with a cross-appointment to the Department of Laboratory Medicine and Pathobiology in the Faculty of Medicine, also the principal investigator of the Moriarty Lab, an infectious diseases research laboratory that studies blood-borne bacterial pathogens. Dr. Moriarty, welcome back. Thank you for being here. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Last time we were on, we talked a lot about COVID, and then we were thinking about Lyme disease and ticks and so forth, and I thought, that's what Dr. Moriarty knows a whole lot about as well, so let's call her back. Um, yes. It must be, I mean, just watching the trailer to that to that documentary, it's always such a reminder of, of just what a problem and, and, and how widespread uh, Lyme disease can be. Uh, what does yeah. Lyme Disease Awareness Month mean, and how much should we be paying attention to it this year? Uh, well, in Canada, it's actually really crucial in large parts of Canada now that are in, certainly in the most heavily populated regions of Canada to be aware of Lyme disease. Um, it's spreading um, very rapidly. A lot of that is um, almost certainly linked to climate change um, and to warming of our, our winters, um, for example. And so um, uh, Lyme disease is caused by bacteria. They're called Borrelia burgdorferi, and they, um, uh, they live in ticks, a certain kind of, um, a couple of different kinds of ticks that, can, uh, that they can live in and that those ticks can transmit them to people. And the uh, ecological range of those ticks is um, 
spreading northward. Um, and so uh, Lyme disease is a big problem in Canada. And one of the major concerns is that a lot of people are not fully aware of it yet. Um, they are not aware that it's something that they need to be concerned about. You know, unlike, you know, many people living on the eastern seaboard of the U.S. are acutely aware of Lyme and has been very aware for decades at this point, um, but a lot of Canadians aren't. And they're not aware that, um, for example, um, you know, most of southern Ontario, southern Quebec, um, all of Nova Scotia, um, likely New Brunswick, um, are now endemic for Lyme disease, which means at least uh, 20% of the ticks, the Exodes ticks that can transmit Lyme disease, in fact, are carrying the bacteria now. Um, and so this means that if you live in, uh, and, and also, sorry, um, southern Manitoba um, and potentially also some of southern um, uh, Saskatchewan, Alberta, and uh, uh, BC and Vancouver Island, um, that if you're bitten by ticks, that it's really important to know whether you live in an endemic region. Um, and if you do, it's really crucial that if you are bitten by a tick that you need to see a doctor um, immediately and get uh, get prophylactic antibiotics to help prevent yourself from getting infected. That's just at that stage. Um, then there also just needs to be awareness of what some of the uh, early symptoms of Lyme disease can be um, so that people know uh, when they need to see a doctor, when they need to get tested. And that includes um, also ensuring that um, physicians are aware of Lyme disease, what the symptoms are, and when and how they need to use testing to ensure that people can get treatment um, as quickly as possible. Lyme disease is quite treatable um, if it's diagnosed early, um, uh, with different lengths um, of of antibiotics, uh, of antibiotic treatments. Uh, one of the major problems, however, is that early diagnosis due to lack of awareness and the problem that Lyme disease often in the early stages presents like, um, you know, any other kind of um, infection that you might get where you've got a fever, you're feeling under the weather, you're not feeling great. Um, it, you know, probably the majority of people develop uh, what's called a bullseye rash, but it's not very, um, it may not be on a visible part of your body. Um, it disappears, you may not see it. Um, and if you, um, if you have darker skin color, it can be harder to recognize. And then a substantial percentage of people also don't develop that rash at all. Um, so it can be uh, very hard to include Lyme disease as a potential early diagnosis. And um, a lot of people simply don't get tested or treated when they need to be. What do you think is responsible for the low awareness? I mean, I, one could guess anecdotally that Canadians summer, you know, there's sort of this idea that things don't, that, that you know, that once summer comes, you're sort of protected other than from mosquitoes, for instance. Uh, but it, it feels like that it feels like this has all evolved quite rapidly uh, in terms of the threat of Lyme yeah. disease in this country. Yes, it is. It's actually emerging very rapidly. Um, people aren't aware of how fast that spread is um, and that it's moving, you know, further north every year um, to the point where, you know, at least 80% of the pop Canadian population is now living in areas at risk for Lyme disease. 
Um, I, I'm not entirely sure. Um, I think that, um, that uh, people who spend a lot of time out of doors um, may be aware of it. Um, certainly, often people who, um, who live um, in areas where they're outdoors a lot, whether they work outdoors a lot, um, they are in their yards a lot, they're farming, fishing, hunting. Um, there is often more awareness of Lyme disease among people um, in these settings. But a lot of people may not realize that, for example, in Toronto, um, in the Rouge Valley, which is a you know beautiful series of um, uh, parks um, that um, people can go to within the city, um, that the that Lyme disease is endemic there, and it's endemic in uh, many of the parks in Toronto right now, um, or at least the ones that have been tested, and that's true in um, you know through. Uh, large parts of southern Ontario, Quebec, Nova Scotia, likely New Brunswick. So people who may not be out of doors all the time and may not be aware of Lyme disease or people who visit locations um, may also be at risk and they may not realize that, you know, living in a suburban yard, for example, or using, um, you know, urban or suburban spaces um, can also expose you to the ticks that cause Lyme disease, and certainly um, yeah. our dogs are vaccinated. But one of our um, one of our dogs actually did pick up Lyme disease over the years, and you know we live in um, you know we would just go to dog parks down by the lake in Toronto and the backyard, and uh, and he picked up Lyme disease. Well, so, so certainly some not a deep woods problem, obviously. I'm speaking with Dr. Tara no. Moriarty. We're talking about uh, Lyme disease. It is Lyme Disease Awareness Month coming up in May. Uh, we'll take a quick break. Right after this, I'm just going to ask you about what people can do to protect themselves. And you mentioned pets, and I think pets are a big concern uh, when it comes to bringing your pets out to check your pets as well uh, for ticks. We'll be back with that. I'm back with Dr. Tara Moriarty. We're speaking about um, Lyme disease at this time of year. Lyme Disease Awareness Month is coming up in May. Uh, Dr. Moriarty is the principal investigator of the Moriarty Lab, an infectious diseases research laboratory that studies blood-borne bacterial pathogens. Uh, I guess the obvious question now is how does one protect themselves um, against tick bites, or at least as best possible? Yes, uh, so that's a good question. Um, and you know, we we know many of us know from COVID now that that it's important to layer protections, and um, the same thing is true for Lyme disease. So there are um, a number of things that people should do. One, um, in places where you live and where you visit, um, be aware of whether Lyme disease is endemic or not, um, and to find that out, the Public Health Agency of Canada. Um, provides good maps for that. Um, the problem, of course, with COVID is that a bunch of the surveillance in the last two years, it hasn't been possible to complete it. Um, but we know anecdotally from multiple sites that uh, Lyme disease um, is still continuing to increase and that there are a lot more people with infections showing up, um, showing up to uh, specialist offices. Um, so be aware of that risk. Be aware of the risk where you visit. If you go camping, if you go places during the summer, um, be aware that, for example, you can contract Lyme disease uh, through big parts of North America, but also Europe, um, Japan, any of the temperate regions of Asia. Um, there are um, there are different kinds of Lyme disease and ticks that are present there. 
Um, the other thing is that people should, um, so it's in outdoor settings that ticks are picked up. They should be aware that ticks are absolutely tiny in the spring um, and the summer, which is when many of us are likely to be bitten, partly because they're so small. They're about the size of a poppy seed, and as they feed over one to two days, they get bigger, but you really need to watch for them. Sorry. Right. No, that's, I was just saying that I didn't realize they were that small. Oh, they're absolutely tiny. That's how people miss them. Yeah. And that's how you don't see them on your pets either. Um, So you, when you've been in an outdoor area, um, when you come inside, it's a good idea to shower. Um, Ticks take a little bit of time to latch on to people. Um, They often spend a bit of time crawling um, to reach a nice, warm, damp place that they can get to. That's often the groin, the scalp, um, armpits, places that you may not actually see. Um, And if you shower when you first come in, that uh, increases the chances that they're going to get washed off and that they can't attach. Um, But you should perform a tick check when you come in. And when you're out of doors in areas where Lyme disease is endemic and where you're, you know, in a, in a place in the outdoors where you might pick it up, especially if there are long grasses, bush, things like that, um, it's a really good idea to wear long pants with those pants tucked into your socks um, and light-colored clothing so that you can see the tiny specks of the ticks. Um, and if you're out, um, you know, in uh, the woods or trails, try to stay at the center of trails um, where there are likely to be fewer ticks that can drop off onto you from grasses. Um, and then the other thing that people can do when they come in, um, you take a shower. And um, another thing you can do is put your um, clothing into the dryer on a hot cycle for 45 minutes, and that will kill whatever ticks are on there. And then in addition, people can wear repellents. So any DEET um, uh, containing repellent um, is good for repelling ticks. So it's a good idea to wear it for that as well as for mosquitoes. Um, And uh, you can also buy in some places clothing that has permethrin that's um, that's, uh, embedded in the, the sort of fabric of the clothing. And that is also a tick repellent. So, um, but the very simple things you can do are shower when you come in out of doors, try to wear long, long pants, um, shoes and socks with your pants tucked in. That's really hard when it's 35 degrees Celsius outside. Yeah. Um, but um, certainly shower when you come in, throw your clothes in a dryer and check yourself for ticks. And if you have a loved one, <laughs> unfortunately, they often go to places where you probably only want a loved one to look. Um, but if you have a loved one who can check you for ticks and in, uh, in, in all those spots that you can't see, then that's a good idea as well. well that's fantastic advice. I had, before I, I let you go, I know you're at university of Toronto, so I had to ask you about the name change today of Toronto metropolitan university and whether there's any <laughs> sort of rivalry going on now that it's a little too close to U of T. Oh, I'm not aware of, I I had just heard about it on the news, just like you had. Um, I haven't, I haven't spoken with any colleagues today. I I don't think people are outraged. Uh, In some ways, I mean, describing it as a metropolitan university is actually a a great description for Ryerson. That's very much um, what it is. It's kind of in the tradition of a lot of, um, um, uh, you know, 
metropolitan or urban applied universities. And I actually think it's probably a pretty good name. There we go. Dr. Moriarty, thank you so much for your advice and for weighing in on that last one as well. I appreciate it. (laughs) Okay. All right. Pleasure to talk to you. You may have noticed this one on bookstore shelves just about everywhere. It is selling fast. It is nonfiction, but it reads like a spy thriller. The timing couldn't be more appropriate. In Freezing Order, a true story of Russian money laundering, state-sponsored murder, and surviving Vladimir Putin's wrath, financier Bill Browder details his fight for justice uh, in the murder in Russia of his lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky. And he says the lessons he's learned being in the Kremlin's crosshairs for years now offer a glimpse into Putin and his regime that he argues many have taken far too long to recognize the true nature of. It is my pleasure to welcome Bill Browder, CEO of Hermitage Capital Management, head of the Global Magnitsky Justice Campaign, author of Red Notice and the just released Freezing Order, a true story of Russian money laundering, state-sponsored murder and surviving Vladimir Putin's wrath. Welcome to the show. Great to be here. It feels like there's so much in in the story of freezing order that we're seeing played out on a much greater stage now with what's happened in Ukraine. Uh, But perhaps for listeners who aren't entirely familiar with the story of your lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky, uh, who was murdered, and what you did afterwards, and the relentlessness with which you were (laughs) pursued uh, by Vladimir Putin for to try to to shut you up, essentially. Yeah, so Sergei Magnitsky was my lawyer in Russia. I was running a big investment fund there. Uh, Sergei discovered a massive $230 million government corruption scheme. Uh, he uh, testified against the officials involved, and he was subsequently arrested, uh, tortured for 358 days, and killed on November 16, 2009. Uh, following his murder, I made it my life's work to go after the people who killed him to make sure they faced justice. And that led to a piece of legislation um, called the Magnitsky Act. The Magnitsky Act freezes the assets and bans the visas of people who do that type of thing in Russia and elsewhere. Vladimir Putin was so infuriated by the Magnitsky Act, he banned the adoption of Russian orphans by American families. And then he came after me personally, and he's been chasing me all over the world with death threats, kidnapping threats, arrest warrants. I've been on the Interpol, uh, Interpol red notice list eight times. They've come come after me with uh, extradition requests and lawsuits and all sorts of stuff. And basically, the level of, of um, energy they put into this um, has, has been one very strong indication of uh, how effective this new, new sanctions regime is, that, that um, going after individuals and their money offshore is something that Putin and his cronies really care about. And this was a matter that was so important to him that I gather it was brought up in that t- famous 2018 meeting uh, between Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin in Helsinki. Well, so, so even before that, in 2017, Putin sent, uh, um, I'm sorry, 2016, Putin sent um, one of his emissaries to Trump Tower, uh, a female lawyer named Natalia Veselnitskaya, to meet with Donald Trump Jr., Jared Kushner, and Paul Manafort to beg for the Magnitsky Act to be repealed if Donald Trump became president. Um, it didn't get repealed. And then in 2018, at the summit that you're referring to in Helsinki, Putin asked Trump to hand me over. It's, it's, it's really remarkable. And, and, and interestingly, Trump said, yeah, I think that's great. What was running through your mind at that point? I mean, you'd been used to this by this point. You'd had a decade of being pursued or more at this point. Uh, but to hear your name uttered in those words and to know 
uh, you know, and, and to hear the president say, the U.S. president say it was an incredible offer. Uh, what, what was your thoughts at that point? Well, I mean, I, I've been dealing with Putin chasing me for, for the, you know, the, la- the, the vast part of, uh, of uh, the last decade, but I never um, felt at risk in America. And all of a sudden, to have the most powerful man in the free world, the president of the United States of America, effectively agree to that, that that made me feel terrible. I mean, I, I you know, I can deal with Putin, or I will, I, I have been able to deal with Putin, but but the idea that I could be sitting, I, at the time I was sitting in Aspen, Colorado, that I could be sitting in the mountains, you know, trying to enjoy myself and and picturing, you know, four blacked out SUVs, you know, surrounding where I was staying and having a bunch of secret service agents load me onto a, uh, into the car and onto a, a rendition flight back to Moscow or I'd be killed was pretty horrifying. It's one of the many, many episodes within the new book that, that paint a very vivid image of what, of how Russia treats international rules to some extent. And we're seeing it again. And I think you've been very vocal over the years about this point that, that rules are just, they're not even suggestions for the Kremlin. They're, they're simply there to be, to be um, violated if possible. Yeah. I mean, the Russians love rules when it, when it relates to everybody else. But they have no intention of following any rules when it when it relates to themselves, and so, you know, they, they, when when their assets get frozen in the UK, they all start screaming bloody murder about um, you know property rights, or if they get shut off of um, Russia Today um, television, they they are all you know bleeding about um, uh, freedom of the press. But when it comes to you know the, the, uh, in Russia, they kill the journalists, they um, steal property, and do whatever the hell they want to do. When you look at the timing of the release of this book, and you wouldn't have known, obviously, we spoke before the invasion of Ukraine about the fact that this book was about to come out. Um, you must feel like the message that you're trying, the message that you're trying to send in, in this book is more important than ever one would think. Yeah, the message of this book is very is very simple, that um, Vladimir Putin is not the normal head of state. He's a, an international criminal, a financial criminal and a murderer. And everybody um, in the past was having a hard time coming coming to, to terms with that. That, that. There was all these people saying, well, Bill, you know, you, you've obviously got some of your own issues and, you know, you know, uh, you know, cool down, dude. But uh, <laughs> but now everybody's seeing that, yeah, he's a he's a, a mass murderer on a, on a large scale. And so, I mean, in a certain way, my book is not even as necessary anymore because everyone's seeing it on television every night. But but my book also has a lot of other messages in there about the granularity of how Putin steals money from his people. And the other thing, which, which um, is not well known still is Putin couldn't get away with all this stuff. If he didn't have a bunch of accomplices and, and these people are what I call, who I call the Western enablers who are working effectively for the Russian security services in the United States and Canada and in the UK and in Europe. And, um, and that's something which needs to stop as well. How have you, how have you assessed so far? I mean, we're at day 61 or 62 now of this invasion. Uh, how have you assessed the way that the international community has come together and carried out many of the things that you've been calling for, for a very long time? Uh, it seems maybe a little bit too late, too little too late at this point, uh, but certainly better than nothing, I would think. Well, it's a lot better than nothing, but it's definitely too little too late. And there's still a lot more to be do- done. I mean, we, we have uh, sanctioned about... Uh, three dozen oligarchs now. And I say we, because it's not, um, it, it depends on who we is. So sometimes Canada, sometimes the US, sometimes UK, 
nobody has a, a sort of totally combined sanctions list doing all the same thing. There are 118 oligarchs that need to be sanctioned, so a lot more oligarchs need to be sanctioned. And then the big elephant in the room is that um, while we're sanctioning these oligarchs, Europe is sending a billion dollars a day to Putin to buy his oil. And he's spending a billion dollars a day killing Ukrainians. How can that be allowed to continue? Has it surprised you at all that we haven't seen the kind of divisions I thought we might see, even now, between Ukraine's partners, so to speak, they're meeting today in uh, in Germany to discuss Ukraine's needs. Uh, do you see do you see the unity there, or, or do you are, is are there warning signs that maybe others of, others of us would be missing at this point? <clears throat> I, I see a lot of divisions. I mean, it, it's all been papered over for public consumption. But look at Germany. You know, are they cutting down? Um, have they stopped buying Russian gas? No. Have they stopped buying Russian oil? Maybe. Um, are they supplying the kind of military equipment that um, Ukraine is asking for? No. Uh, I think there's a lot of divisions. We're just doing the best we can to present, you know, present a unified face because that's important. But uh, I think that, uh, that that particularly in Europe, they, they've, they've, they need to step up to the plate. If they don't, um, they're going to be the ones on the front line next. You've warned about this for a while now. You think that Vladimir Putin in Ukraine is is just testing some boundaries that he would be he would easily uh, find himself on the doorstep of say in Estonia or a Latvia or a Lithuania. There's no question, and in fact, you can just read the headlines today. You know that the Russian the, the Russians are saying that effectively they're at war with NATO right now. I mean, all this tiptoeing around saying we don't want to like do a no fly zone, we don't want to do this, we don't want to do that because we don't want to enrage Putin and be in a, a third world war. We're already in the war. And so the question is, how, how do we um, keep this war to be as, as um, cost-free as possible in terms of human lives? And the best way of doing that is to show Putin some strength early on so he doesn't do something terrible later. I'm speaking with Bill Browder, CEO of Hermitage Capital Management, head of the Global Magnitsky Justice Campaign and author of the just-released Freezing Order, a true story of Russian money laundering, state-sponsored murder, and surviving Vladimir Putin's wrath. After this, we'll talk a bit more about the war so far in Ukraine, how it's gone terribly wrong for uh, someone who likes to present himself as an, a man who knows it all and is a strong man of, of the nth degree. Uh, what has Vladimir Putin's reaction been to the last 61 days, one, one would like to know? And we'll ask that question next. I'm back with Bill Browder, CEO of Hermitage Capital Management, head of the Global Magnitsky Justice Campaign, and author of the just-released Freezing Order, a true story of Russian money laundering, state-sponsored murder, and surviving Vladimir Putin's Wrath. Uh, I'd be interested to know, you've spent a long time watching and studying Vladimir Putin. Uh, He must be apoplectic about what's happened over the last 61 days in Ukraine, including the sinking of, you know, of of the of the main warship in the Black Sea. Uh, I mean, everything seems to have gone wrong for for Putin so far. Yeah, this this creates a true threat to his position in power and his um, probability of survival. If if he's seen to be weak, which he's seen to be right now with the sinking of the ship, with 20,000 soldiers killed, with all this unbelievable mess ups at every different stage of the invasion. Uh, if, the, if the Russian people knew that, if they knew what was going on, based just on, on today's facts, they wouldn't allow him to be president anymore. And so he has to bend the truth. He's got to um, suppress the truth. Uh, and he has to create all sorts of alternative realities. 
But this is his Achilles heel. On one hand, starting this war was a very popular thing for him to do. Everybody rallied around the president because people like to rally around the president during a war. But this war could be his undoing if this information and, and the perception that we have of him based on the information is shared by the Russians. What can the West do now? I mean, we're seeing a meeting today in Germany trying to discuss Ukraine's needs, but what do you think must be done now to either keep the pressure up or to make sure that Ukraine doesn't lose this war? Well, two very simple things. Give Ukraine every bit of military hardware that they're asking for, and two, stop buying Russian oil. If we did those two things, I think that Ukraine would win. I interviewed someone last week from Harvard who was saying that, in fact, we don't need to buy Russian oil. <laughs> we, there's, you know, there's, there's enough oil out there that it could be replaced quite easily and that the Russians have nowhere else to sell it. In fact, they're quite vulnerable. Is, is that something that you would agree with? I mean, are we, are we, not, are we once again treading too lightly? Well, oil is, oil is only one of the two. I, I, should, I should have said yes. it more properly. There's also the supply of gas. Natural gas is not easily replaceable because of the infrastructure involved. You need pipelines. It evaporates if you don't, you know, put it to the place it's supposed to be going to. Oil, oil is easily fungible. You don't need Russian oil. And so I think that, that Europe will stop, by Russian, stop buying Russian oil. But I think that gas is a much more difficult question. It'll take longer. And that, of course, is where they make most of their money. You've posited a few different scenarios that you think are likely more or less likely in the in the near future uh, where do you see this all headed uh in the not too distant future i think the most likely scenario is that it just is headed where it is right now towards um uh an unpleasant stalemate putin isn't able to um to win the war and ukraine isn't unable or is, is unable to eject russia from its territory and we end up just with more and more bloodshed, more and more loss of civilian life, and you know, heartbreaking, heartbreaking scenario for for as long as we can imagine. Which is sort of what we saw begin in 2014, right? I mean, the, the war in in the east in Donbass was essentially this is a continuation to some extent, much more brutal and violent version of what was a bit of a frozen conflict. But as you've mentioned before, this all began eight years ago, not 60 days ago. Exactly. And so it began eight years ago, and it could easily go, for, go on for another eight years. And what Putin is banking on is that after a while, we'll grow tired of watching it on our television, and we'll, we'll start focusing on other things. And he can commit his atrocities without the, the world reacting to it. I mean, that's what we have done effectively with Syria. You know, we were all very sympathetic to the Syrians. And now, who's talking about Syria? And you've obviously understood over many, many years, the necessity of paying attention to Vladimir Putin and not, not letting him off the hook in these sorts of situations. That's true. And, and <clears throat> there is one thing that's very, very helpful in this whole scenario, though, which is that President Biden um, said that Vladimir Putin is a war criminal, he's a butcher, and he shouldn't be in power. It's very difficult to walk that back and go back to status quo after some, saying something like that from the most important person in the free world. When you set out to write to Freezing Order, uh, circumstances were very different, as you mentioned earlier. Has this now been a complete game changer? I mean, you've been studying this for a very, very long time. You know this, this, this whole topic inside out. Have we now crossed a Rubicon with Russia that, from which there will be no return? I put it another way, that Vladimir Putin has crossed a Rubicon, which there'll be no return. And we're just reacting to that. But yes, 
they're, we're not returning to anything like we saw before. It's going to take decades for Russia to overcome this, and it's certainly not going to happen while Vladimir Putin is in power. So for the time being, if, if, if countries like Canada want to be doing more, and, I, and, and we seem to be able to find new ways to send more money, add more sanctions, what do you think must be done now in, in the near term to try to make sure that, uh, that Putin at least doesn't get to claim victory, say, on May the 9th? Um, more of the same. I mean, Canada is doing a good job. I'm, um, I'm impressed. I, I, I think, in fact, I, I'm impressed with most governments for the most part. I mean, I, I couldn't have ever imagined three months ago that we would be having 30 five oligarchs on a sanctions list. I couldn't have imagined that uh, 600, um, I'm sorry, $350 billion of central bank reserves were frozen. I couldn't imagine that a lot of Russian banks were cut off in SWIFT. It's pretty, pretty impressive, but we need to fill in the gaps, close the loopholes and uh, finish the job that we started. And in terms of the, the sanctions themselves, clearly they will take time to bite, right? We're in that sort of that zone where they're having an impact, but we're not seeing uh, the full brunt of them yet. I don't imagine. Um, that's no, they're biting right now. Um, but but um, but for us to win this war, or for the Ukrainians to win this war, Putin's got to run out of money. It's not like the sanctions are going to dissuade him from what he's doing. He doesn't stop doing stuff with external pressure. He doesn't want to show weakness. But the sanctions are are absolutely horrible for for Putin and for Russia and for the oligarchs and for everybody. And so. We just need to do more of them, and so that eventually the, the money dries out. As a last word, um, as this book comes out with the messages including it's a very personal story for you, what would you like listeners, readers to walk away with from uh, with the release and the timing of it, given the timing? Well, I think that, <clears throat> that everyone will walk away with the understanding that Putin's whole thing, not for nationalistic reasons, he's doing this whole thing because he's a, a petty crook. And he wants to stay in power. And it's very important to understand the difference because all this I talk about him wanting to recreate the glory of the Soviet Union. Nobody does that if there's nobody who has stolen the, the amount of money that Vladimir Putin has stolen from his own country is a patriot. And that's the important thing for everyone to understand. We've been misreading that for, for a very long time, I get the impression, in your eyes. I think everybody, even up till today, keeps on talking about him try, have, trying to recreate the glory of the Soviet Union. That's not what he's trying to do. He's just trying to stay in power. And he's using all these arguments as a way to sell it to the public. But this is what it's all about. It's just a criminal who's stolen a lot of money, who's been around for a long time, who has no legitimacy, who's desperate to, the, to not get overthrown. Bill Browder, congratulations on the new book. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you. Of all the things I thought that I might be able to do during the pandemic with a little bit of extra time, or at least not as many places to go, is maybe do something like write a book. I didn't do it. It didn't happen. Other people got got more creative and did the kind of things they had meant to be doing, or things that were on their to-do list for a very long time. And one of them includes my next guest, Josh Ramsey, who's the lead singer of Marianna's Trench. Of course, he'd always wanted to put together a solo project. He just never had time to do it until the pandemic rolled along. And sure enough, suddenly there was the time, there was the inspiration, there were even some collaborators out there that he could work with, that he wanted to work with, who happened to have a little bit of free time on their hands as well. So after two decades of success for the group, including a Juno Award for Band of the Year in 2013, his individual success as a songwriter, including Grammy nomination for the Song of the Year, for Song of the Year for Carly Rae Jepsen's Call Me Maybe, you must remember that one. Um... 
He's now released a solo project, The Josh Ramsey Show, it's called. It came out earlier this month. It is a very ambitious project. I managed to listen to almost all of it uh, over the last little bit. And I look forward to speaking to Josh Ramsey about it now. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me, man. Yeah, it's great. I mean, when, when, when I first heard you interviewed in another interview talking about 18 different songs or 18 different genres, I thought you might be kidding. And then I listened to them and you weren't. You weren't. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, I um, I, I basically just, I, I was really trying to make choices that would um, make it not be a Marianas Trench record because I really didn't want it to sound like I just went and Mary, made a Marianas Trench record on my own. So that just led me to the choice of, of just trying to do a whole bunch of things that I would never have done on a Marianas Trench album. And apparently you wrote these as you went, right? Like you didn't actually have, yeah. it wasn't a concept album. You just sort of sat down. How does that work? Uh, pretty much like how you think. I don't know, just one song at a time <laughs> until, I mean, yeah, pretty much just one song at a time until I felt like it was done. It's interesting because I, I think you would put one aside and then go work on something else and then come back and go work on that again. Did you actually finish each one, then record it, then move on to the next one? Um. Most of them, yeah, most of them were like a start to finish thing where like that would be the only thing I would be working on for for a week or two and then I would move on. A couple of songs I, I um, a couple of songs I had to pick away at because um, they were a little more uh, time consuming. The, the final song of the album is a uh, features a full symphony orchestra. So writing that was pretty involved. So um, I would kind of pick away at that and then come back to it. And um, that that uh, that one that one was a real uh, labor of love. <laughs> Uh, there's a lot of great stories about the individual songs, and you've been nice enough to uh, to put up some videos explaining the background between each many of the songs, which is fascinating. Uh, did you look out at any other uh, sort of front men, so to speak, who had gone solo and sort of what they had done right and what they had done wrong and what uh, you didn't want to do with this? Oh, that's interesting. That's a great question. I, no one's asked me that. Um, no, not really, except the only thing, the only thing that did strike me is um, – um, as I was working on it, I would, there, you know, I have a couple of people that I will send, send songs to just be like, you know, what do you think? And I, that I can like sort of depend on for honest feedback. Um, and when, when I'd finished the first couple, uh, my friend, Dave Gen, who produced the first Mariana's Trench album said, uh, he said to me, you know, this stuff is really produced, man. And I was like, well, yeah, that's what I do. And, and he was like, well, aren't you aware that usually when lead singers go do solo albums, they usually do like quiet, introspective acoustic albums. Did you not get the memo on that? Or, <laughs> um, but you know, it's funny. I feel like that would have been an obvious choice because that is what a lot of people do, but, but I just don't feel like that's me. Uh, there's just, um, there's something about my personality. that's just very <laughs> extra, I guess. <laughs> and so, so really this is, um, and you know, in some ways, um, the last um, in uh, the last Mariana's Trench album, Phantoms, I, I really came under a, a, a hard deadline that um, that uh, I felt um, I'm really happy with that album in terms of the songs that are on it. But I felt like it did get affected by the deadline by the songs that uh, were never written because I, I really feel like that album should have had like three more songs kind of thing. Like it just didn't quite feel like exactly what I wanted it to be, but I had a deadline and there was nothing I could do. Whereas with this album, Hey man, there was a pandemic, the whole world shut down. There's no deadlines. I, I could just lock myself in a room and just, and just take as long as I needed to take. And that's really what I did here. So I think, I think because of that, that I think there's a very irreverent sense of not holding back whatsoever on this album. <laughs> 
Absolutely. Yeah. Talk, talk to journalists about deadlines and not liking the work that they put out sometimes. Yeah. yeah I've, I've I mean, I, I didn't that mean that I didn't, I didn't mean that I didn't like oh, the work I don't mean, that I yeah. did, but yeah, I just, yeah. I just felt like I could have done a little more had I had a little more time. Yeah. Tell me about all the different, because the genres are remarkable and there are many on them and you, you move seamlessly from each one. I mean, every song sounds like you, but sounds different from the song you did with Chad Kroger to uh, Miles and Miles, which is a lovely song with your, with your sister, right? Um, yeah. Uh, and then Spellbound, which is the, I think the, the symphonic one, the Beatles-like one that you were mentioning earlier. Yeah, that's um, a Beatles-y one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean that's it. So tell me which of those came really naturally, and which of those were a little more a bit more of a hill to climb. You know, um, there was a couple that were a bit more of a hill to climb, but but not in a not in a tedious way. It was still just very fun. Um, you know, but like when I was a teenager, there was um, I grew up in a recording studio, and there was also a recording studio at our house. So really, this most of the time, this really just reminded me of how I used to make music when I was a teenager, because I would, I didn't have a band. So I would just play all the instruments myself and, and just kind of, just kind of like, I would make a new song every day or whatever. And it sort of, sort of took me back to being a kid actually. Um, But I think um, in terms of the ones that felt like a bit of a hill to climb, as you said, because I, maybe because I hadn't done them before, but um, um, uh, there's a, there's a song called blame it on the beat that is like full on, like, like rip roaring twenties, big band swing. Um, right. and I had a ton of fun doing it. Um, but it was, um, I had never written a big band swing song before. So like writing the horn chart was, uh, was just like a new thing for me. I'd never tried to do that before, but I had a blast doing it. Like it was so much fun. Um, it was so, so much fun doing it. Um, uh, but yeah, I was like, huh, I wonder how you do this. This, this ought to be interesting. Um, so there was that one. And, um, actually there's a song towards the end called, um, uh, like there's nobody watching that's like full on sort of ready for Ibiza uh, EDM. And that one, that one I've spent a lot of time on as well, because um, I had never, I had never made an EDM song before. So, um, you know, spending all the time with the programming and getting all the sounds right and stuff. Um, again, it was a really fun exercise. But it was just not something I had done before. <laughs> How's the reaction been? Because clearly you're going to have your Mariana's Trench fans who are going to be like, well, you know, what am I going to get here? Am I going to get another Mariana's Trench album or something? Am I going to get the acoustic, you know, sort of introspective album? And you've done right. something very, very different. What's the reaction been like? Um, it's been really positive, thankfully, because, um, you know, on the eve of it coming out, I had this, this, uh, this, this pang of panic hit me as I realized that um, – it was it was taking a pretty big risk not having a unified sound to the album and uh, the only unified sound of it is that my voice is on every song but other than that it 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 it's all over the place and i realized that um that that was uh, a risk to do that much variety because that was asking the audience to also have that much variety in terms of their listening potential um and but um but thankfully you know i think i think everyone's been really uh, receptive to it i think the 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 feedback I've gotten has been really, really positive. And I'm just so grateful for that. Um, and, uh, you know, I think, I think anyone listening to this album, I think as soon as they get to like song three or song two, even they're like, well, it, this is not Mariana's Trench. That's for sure. Um, but I, th- you know, what I think it feels, I still think it feels like me, even though I'm the songwriter for Mariana's Trench and I'm the songwriter for this, I still feel like this is different, but it, it does still feel like me. Like, I feel like this is, um, I heard some, this isn't my, my word, but I heard someone else say this feels like a different show by the same director. And I, I think that's sort of the best description I, I could give it. 
And you mentioned, I mean, I, I was going to ask you, but I, I, just about growing up in a music studio and, and, and being surrounded by, by, by musicians, people with musical talent. You've kind yeah. of been dabbling in things your entire life. So the, I, the way you mentioned going back to the studio, like you did as a teenager, just kind of tinkering around and figuring out what worked and what didn't is, is a fascinating way to make an album these days. I mean, yeah, it was, it really did make me feel like, like just being a kid again. Um, you know, I like not, you know, not, uh, in a lot of ways, not watching the clock, you know, not, not caring how long it took for me to do something and just doing it all on my own too. Like haven't done that for a long time. And, um, and also in terms of like when I was a teenager writing songs and learning about writing songs, it wasn't like I had a sound. I was just like, I'll write a song like this today and tomorrow I'll write a song like that. And this really did kind of take me back to that mentality and, and just sort of reminded me that at the end of the day, I think the important thing, um, it, definitely with this album, but I think with, with any music, I think at the, uh, at the end of the day, the important thing isn't what genre are we doing? It's are we making a good song? <laughs> and let's make a yeah. good song. Like good songs should always be the priority. So, um, uh, you know, I, I feel like um, there, the, you know, the hardest thing with this album was actually just choosing what order the <laughs> wanted to feel like a disjointed scattershot, you know, so it actually was right. like quite a jigsaw puzzle to put together uh, the track list that actually took a really long time. It seemed to make sense when I, I mean, I thought it made sense when I listened to it, but it was, uh, Thanks. I'm, oh, glad. Take, I'm glad, I'm glad. Yeah. I mean, then again, I was a captive audience at this point, so I was, <laughs> but I was enjoying how it all went. Yeah. I'm speaking with Josh Ramsey, uh, lead singer of Mariana's Trench with his new solo, first solo record out, the Josh Ramsey, Ramsey show, 18 different tracks, 18 different drums, genres. We'll hear one of them now and we'll co- take a quick break and come back and talk a bit more just about some of the inspiration for some of the songs on, uh, the album. We'll be back with that. One of the tracks from the Josh Ramsey show, Best of Me, that was uh, that was the country track. How yeah. was that? That was a di- that's different. Yeah, that was a different one um, uh, for me. I mean, I've worked in country before in terms of producing and writing for other people, but I've never had to deliver a country vocal myself before, and um, that was one of the most. Um, not musically speaking or vocally speaking, like it wasn't a difficult song for me to sing, but to get my voice to sound authentic and to get it to feel like a, like a country voice uh, and, and not feel like a caricature um, that actually took me quite a bit of work on that one. Uh, and then I think it's funny because then in the end we released that song and, and everybody heard the first verse and thought that it was Dallas. <laughs> and I was like, well, <laughs> It was, you must have done a great job at it. I, I know that, that uh, there, there are, you know, there are moments on the album too that are, that are dedications. I, I realize, and my condolences, by the way, I know that you, oh, thank both you, your yeah. parents passed away during the pandemic. Uh, both yeah. of them were very well accomplished in, in their own right. Yeah. Um, I, what was it like sort of writing songs for them? Because I think that's kind of, and you said they wouldn't have wanted anything down. They would have wanted something happy and up. Yeah, I, I and and frankly, I don't think that anyone. I mean, hey man, it's it's twenty twenty two, and we've been living through a pandemic. I don't think anyone needs to hear any lamenting songs about grief and loss at the moment. I just don't think that's. I, you know, read the room, you know. I just I don't, I don't yeah. think. And and on top of that, I just that really wouldn't have been their style either of them. Um, um, I think what would have been their style is 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 what I did. You know, I I feel like. Um, those songs are not about loss at all. The songs are really about love. And, um, and also both songs, um, you know, are, are very self-aware that they are showing off the things that I learned how to do because I learned them from my parents. Um, and I think they would have appreciated that. 
and you got married as well. Uh, I did. Time. So, so, the, so the, yeah. So, so there's a there's a song in there too, right? Yeah, there's a song in there too called uh, "Like You Do," and uh, it's uh, I, I'm really I'm really proud of it. It's it's one of the ones that's uh, for obvious reasons is very close to me on this record, and um, yeah, it's uh, it's it's about the moment she said yes, but we hadn't told anybody yet. <laughs> that's it's perfect. Um, what a great, what a great, what a great, uh, what great material for a good song. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> what was it like to work with Chad, Chad Kroger? I know you're friends. Um, yeah. But you, uh, Chad's you, great. You sort of, I mean, that's the lead. Yeah. We didn't, um, we were never in the same room or anything. I, I mean, I sent him the track and he sent me back vocals. Um, but I'll tell you what, man, as soon as I, as soon as I got his vocals, uh, that song really went from one place to another. Like it really took it up a huge notch. And I think like, especially the last chorus when we're both kind of going and, and there's, all the improvising and stuff. Like, I think that's really where the, the, the song really, really like started to take off. Uh, yeah. Once he got on there, it really got to a new level for me, for sure. I think we can play a little snippet of it actually. Great. <laughs> That's that's a that's a serious seventies vibe you got going there, Josh. That's oh, a, yeah. that's a great track. That reminded me of thank you. Of you know, yeah, that reminded me of like uh, you know the Muskoka's nineteen seventy seven seventy six. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of uh, it's kind of like uh, Lenny Kravitz meets ACDC or something. <laughs> yeah, I, I heard you say that it was a Lenny Kravitz song, but he wouldn't have let it get out of control like that. Yeah, he would have had way more control than that. <laughs> Just as well. So tell me about you're you're out on tour now. Where can people see you? Um, yeah, we're doing, um, we're just about to start Canada. Um, I leave, um, I leave just in a couple days. So we're just, um, we're just in pre-production right now. Um, working on the show with the band and rehearsals and, um, yeah, we're going to a lot of places. I'm really looking forward to it. It's going to be weird to be on tour and not be with Mariana's Trench. Um, but I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. We've got a great band and, uh, yeah, I think we're going to have a really good time. Are you, are you doing all, are you doing the whole album? Uh, you're going yeah. to do all those genres from EDM to country to the whole bit? Oh yeah. That's what made it putting together the band quite difficult because I needed players who could do a lot of different things. It must be, have you been playing at all? Have you done any live, live shows um, over the past couple of years? Uh, Mariana's Trench has played uh, two times. And plus That's a couple it, live stream things. Yeah, we played two times. I mean, it's I mean, it's been it's been weird, right? Um, but yeah, yeah. Um, since the mandates have, have, uh, have oh no, sorry, we played three times actually. Um, uh, yeah, since the mandates have have eased up, um, then it's it's been nice to get out and play again. So I mean, this summer basically what I'm doing is I'm touring the solo record, but then uh, on the weekends doing festival shows with Mariana's Trench at, at the same time. Well, it's good to be back out there, I'm sure. Josh Ramsey, thank you so much for sharing the story behind The Josh Ramsey Show. Congratulations on a project completed, the solo project thank completed you. at last. Yeah, good luck yeah, on the tour. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you for having me, man. You're welcome. Have a great night. I was reading a sobering stat from the UN Refugee Agency today. They now predict that more than 8 million people will flee the war in Ukraine this year alone. That's double what they were estimating in early March. 8 million People, of course, Canada has a large Ukrainian diaspora, lots of people hoping to come here. Um, 
the Canadian government has set up what is essentially an unlimited uh, number of people can come briefly or temporarily um, for a few years here and set up, uh, and they've set up a whole system for it. When I was walking through the airport the other day, I was pleasantly surprised to see coming out of Vancouver's airport, uh, two people sitting there, Red Cross people welcoming people from Ukraine. They didn't happen to be any on my plane, as far as I could tell. Uh, but it was certainly nice to see that all those services that are that were needed are so desperately needed to welcome people coming from Ukraine or coming from bordering countries that where they've first gone to, coming to Canada, that some of those things are now in place slowly but surely. Because early on, there were, of course, some complaints that the infrastructure just wasn't there yet to begin welcoming people. Um, about 60,000 people so far have been approved through the emergency travel initiative launched last month to help people resettle uh, after many fled to Europe to escape Russia's war. Again, they've been arriving at uh, Toronto Edmonton International Airport since April 1st and in Vancouver since April 8th. Um, the immigration minister said most of the applicants are now in Warsaw or Berlin. They may come here temporarily. They will have access to stuff like language training and childcare, help finding a job and so on. But we still hear complaints now about long times getting appointments to submit biometric information, or at least to give biometric information that's needed. Uh, they still need visas to come. That was something that wasn't gotten rid of, uh, despite some questions. So how is the system adapting, and how is Canada preparing to welcome more people? How will they get here? Joining me now is Sean Fraser, the Federal Minister for Immigration and the Member of Parliament for Central Nova. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Ben, it's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for having me. We saw some staggering numbers today from the UN Refugee Agency. 8.3 million people, they believe, now are going to leave Ukraine this year. That's up from about half that back in early March that they had predicted. Um, certainly, you have a better idea of how many people you think might be coming to Canada. How is that working so far? How have you been able to adapt to trying to meet the demand for those who want to come to this country? Um, look, thanks very much for the question. And, and this is uh, a, a really encouraging uh, point about the, the Canadian program that we've developed uh, we realized early on, back in mid-January, there could be a potentially significant number of people coming to Canada. Uh, my first reaction was to determine whether Canada could stand up a, a traditional refugee resettlement initiative. Uh, and it quickly became clear that when you're dealing with uh, tens of thousands of people or more, that's the kind of thing that would have required us to bring people in over the course of several years. Uh, we quickly looked at what programs we had on the shelf that had the horsepower to deal with uh, enormous volumes of people. And, and we realized that our, our visitors regime, uh, the way we bring in tourists, students, uh, workers, that has the capacity to process a couple million people a year. Uh, what we ended up doing was using the mechanics of that system and paring away a lot of the administrative requirements that usually lead to a person's refusal to come into Canada so we could process as many people as quickly as possible. Uh, the early signs are that it's working. Uh, the new system, though it was officially opened on March 17th, and of course we were processing people in advance of that date on an expedited basis, uh, but that uh, process that launched in mid-March had a two-week uh, processing period. So the first arrivals we started, or approvals rather, we started seeing uh, really came in at the very end of March, very beginning of April. Since that time, we're in the ballpark of 60,000 people who've been approved, and we're dealing with essentially the last uh, three and a half, four weeks. Uh, to be able to handle that kind of capacity gives me faith that the system is working quite well. Uh, of course, we have to continue to pivot our strategy on the ground in Europe to make sure the personnel, 
the equipment for our security screening process is in place where the applicants are, and we continue to monitor migration flows so we can ensure we have the uh, people in place and the resources in place to process large numbers. And uh, we're seeing a, a huge rate of approval uh, and huge numbers are coming through now with over 90% um, uh, of the applications are, are being processed within that two week processing time. Uh, and that's a really encouraging sign that the system's holding up very well. Because I understand at the beginning, one of the big issues was it was hard to track where everyone was going to be because people had found out all over all across Europe. Some that we had spoken to were in Berlin, others were in Paris, others ended up in the UK. Um, so getting the biometrics would be tough if you didn't have that surge capacity in each of those areas. That's right. One of the advantages that we have uh, to respond to this particular crisis is that we don't have a shortage of visa application centers across Europe. And we had on hand mobile biometrics kits that we could actually move to different locations and continue to have the capacity to move. Uh, when we realized what was happening in mid-January, we actually started moving those, uh, both the teams of people and the biometrics kits uh, across where we anticipated to, to uh, we would see locations with large numbers of people applying. Um, that strategy has helped, and I don't mean to suggest it's, it's um, uh, perfect. You're obvious, obviously going to have some sort of uh, uh, chaotic experience when you're dealing with millions of people who fled a country to, uh, to the west of Ukraine in, in a matter of weeks. Uh, but having that flexibility and that early planning is really paying dividends. Uh, but to your point, I, I was very surprised when I realized the second busiest location for applications to come to Canada was Berlin. Uh, it's not right uh, adjacent to the, uh, the western border of Ukraine, uh, but we've been able to pivot by uh, making a decision to open a second uh, larger location in Berlin, as well as Warsaw, to deal with this swell in applications that we've seen. So we're going to continue to remain nimble and flexible and, and to make whatever adjustments we need to process people as quickly as possible. When it comes to getting them here, I know there's been talk of charter flights. Uh, I know you were doing a survey to try and figure out where people might be, how you might arrange them, because of course, if people are fanned out, it's difficult to get them all to one place at one time to put them on a plane. And you've also started a new program as well to uh, allow Canadians and others to donate air mile points to help uh, people get over here. I, I, how are those all working? And when, when might we see a charter flight, if at all? Uh, so we will see chartered flights, I can uh, reassure you of that. And I do want to communicate as well that while we've been setting up some of these uh, government-led or uh, government partnership uh, type programs, uh, there are people arriving in Canada. We've got uh, nearly 20,000 people have arrived since the beginning of the year. And uh, I want to reassure Canadians that some of the people who have been approved are already here and continue to come. Uh, we did make a decision to uh, stand up uh, chartered flights to bring people here. And that's going to be helpful in certain locations where we do see large numbers of people who've been approved and want to remain in, in a particular location. Uh, to your point, though, we see an enormous volume of people who don't necessarily have a place to stay in Warsaw or Vienna or Bucharest or wherever they first uh, arrived, and they continue to travel wherever they can find a safe place to lay their head. Uh, we have launched that survey that you mentioned, and we're seeing a significant majority of people have intention to come to Canada over the next few months. We're just uh, finalizing our analysis of the data to figure out where they're coming from. And this is where the real strength of that partnership with Air Canada and the Shapiro Foundation is going to pay dividends. When you realize people may be spread across Europe, it's hard to arrange charter flights that would stop in every community along the way. It wouldn't make sense. It would be very a very inefficient way to do it. Uh, by having this capacity to use the private donations from Air Canada and the Shapiro Foundation and from Canadians writ large, we're going to uh, have uh, cost-free flights for at least 10,000 Ukrainians, and they can be booked at whichever airport is closest to where one of the people who've been approved to come 
happen to find themselves. Uh, this kind of innovation and flexibility in real time is what's allowing us to respond quickly and allowing us to get more people here. And to your question about when people should expect to see them, uh, I anticipate over the next number of weeks, you're going to see uh, Ukrainians arriving through these uh, the mix of these different programs. When it comes to... Uh to some of the support on the ground. I realize a lot of this is provincial, whether it's healthcare or education, uh, but how much progress have you made? Because early on, there were clearly complaints from different groups about a lack of clarity about what kind of services and what kind of supports would be offered to uh, to Ukrainians arriving in this country. Have you managed to, I know BC has just announced uh, healthcare. Uh, have you managed to work that out is, or is that still a slow process? Uh, it's going actually very well from my perspective. Uh, there are sur- still certain details that will will take a little bit of time in certain provinces to sort out. And, and some of them, to, to be clear, are, are not necessarily details for the federal government to work out. But I should give a, a huge thank you uh, to our provincial and territorial partners. There has not been a single exception. Uh, every single one of them, regardless of region or partisan stripe, has indicated that they want to do their part to help. And I think that's been a really refreshing Team Canada approach that we've seen here. Um, for our part... And I think it's important as well to highlight with an ordinary refugee resettlement program uh, that takes place over many years, uh, there are prearranged programs that are designed to support people and make sure they have access to the services they need. We've invented something entirely new as a result of this response, and that's a temporary protection model for people who are in need of safe haven that have an intention to return home after the crisis has come to an end. Um, because this is a new set of facts and a new kind of program, we have to sort details out in real time, not several years after a conflict has broken out, as is the case with most refugee resettlements that happen, initiatives that happen uh, around the world and over the course of Canada's history. So we made a decision to step up our game when it came to extending settlement supports. It's typically reserved for permanent residents to make sure that these uh, visitors, if I can use an imprecise term, uh, to Canada who are in need of protection for human humanitarian reasons, uh, still have access to language training, to the supports that these groups uh, provide. In some instances, it's childcare. In other instances, it's those soft supports, teaching your family how to ride the bus or to sign up for a bank account. We also uh, set up reception services at airports across Canada, Vancouver, Edmonton, Toronto, with the ability to scale that to other locations as well. And Quebec is doing something uh, independently in Montreal. Uh, We also made the decision to extend six weeks of income support to make sure that a person has some basic access to the necessities when they first arrive, as well as temporary accommodations for the two, first two weeks of a person's stay. Uh, provinces and territories at different paces have stepped up with services around education, around uh, health, around childcare. Uh, and normally when a person comes in on an open work permit, which we've attached to, the, to this um, program as well, uh, once they've been working for a period of time, they have access to some of these services in any event. Uh, so we continue to have conversations with our, our counterparts in the nonprofit sector, in the settlement sector, in the provincial and territorial levels of government, uh, to make sure that people have access not just to the ability to get to Canada, but to the services that they need to do well once they arrive. Where, if you look at it, and I know because I've spoken to a lot of people who have their individual experiences, and individual experiences always vary. But where have where have where's been the real success point for you? And what is what should people out there know where the growing pains still are? Because you've essentially had to invent this from scratch to some extent. Yeah, so uh, let let me deal with the challenges first. Uh, The the challenges uh, are driven not by uh, government processes or administrative burdens, in in my experience. They're they're driven by the chaos that is attached to uh, a war that sends millions of people fleeing from their homeland in a very short period of time. 
Uh, when I spoke to the um, uh, High Commissioner for UNHCR, who was in Ottawa with me a few weeks ago, uh, he described the scene on the ground as, as a river of people who were flowing through uh, the landscape, uh, leaving Ukraine. Uh, when you have literally millions of people who arrive largely in a few key locations at uh, points of entry on the western border of Ukraine uh, to neighboring countries, you're going to have a chaotic situation. Uh, in the early days, uh, getting set up and explaining to people how they can access a Canadian program, how they can find their way to the location of biometrics units was an enormous challenge. Uh, but we're finding though, uh, as uh, a little bit of time passes, we're able to both ramp up our capacity to process more people, and we're also able to get uh, information uh, to people in a, a clearer and more efficient way. Uh, what I'm hearing right now is that uh, the people who are trying to come to Canada and access our programs are having an easier time than they were a few weeks ago. That's because we continue to reprofile resources to the locations where the resources are needed. I'm not somebody who's going to sit in Ottawa with my um, my door closed and my ears shut and not listen to what the challenges are happening on the ground. Uh, I find when you actually talk to people who are living and breathing the experience, who've been to the region, uh, who are making applications, you can learn where your bottlenecks are and you can get rid of them. Uh, that's the strategy that we've taken from day one is identify challenges, respond to those challenges and, and uh, uh, solve those challenges. And by opening new biometrics facilities, by um, uh, reprofiling people and equipment to different locations, and by reaching out to groups to establish partnerships to support people when they arrive, uh, we're seeing a record level of processing in a very short period of time. And I'm really pleased to see that our, our capacity is held up, notwithstanding the uh, unprecedented volume of people we're seeing uh, apply to the system in, in such a short period of time. If you're just tuning in, I'm talking to Sean Fraser, the Federal Minister of Immigration and Member of Parliament for Central Nova. When we come back, a question a bit about some of the other knock-on effects to other programs, other people waiting to come to Canada, and some of the issues we're seeing there. That's next. I'm back with Sean Fraser, the Federal Minister for Immigration and Member of Parliament for Central Nova. He's speaking to us tonight from Ottawa. We've been talking about all the places, all the plans in place to bring Ukrainian uh, Ukrainians fleeing the war there to this country. Uh, nearly 60,000 applicants so far. Uh, and uh, Minister Fraser was saying that a vast majority of them do, in fact, plan to come to this country. That wasn't always entirely clear how many of them were going to stay in Europe or how many of them would come here. But uh, about 70% or more or less, maybe, uh, might be planning to come this way. And there's obviously logistics and getting them here, making sure they're processed properly. Uh, Minister Fraser, I want to ask you a bit about, I mean, we've seen um, a, a sort of a rekindling of, of, of anger within the Afghan interpreter community about uh, some challenges trying to bring their families over. And I've spoken to them. I've been there. I've been to that part of the world. I understand how challenging it is to try to make sure people have the proper documents, the proper exit visas and so forth. Have you made any progress in the last few weeks since we saw the last round uh, of protests from uh, from the families of the, uh, of the inter from the interpreters themselves? Uh, yeah, and I, I'm encouraged by some of the progress I'm seeing, but uh, let, let me just reiterate that the circumstances on the ground are extremely challenging. And, and I also want to say thank you to the uh, previously resettled interpreters who are trying desperately to bring their families here. I've had the opportunity to have another conversation with them recently. Uh, th these are good people. These are good people who served Canada, who want nothing more than to be reunited with and we actually established a specific program to bring the extended families of these previously resettled interpreters because we want to reunite them with their families. We have run into some of the challenges that you've mentioned about 
getting access to travel documents, not just in uh, Afghanistan, which is obviously challenging with the, the Taliban having seized control, uh, but also for those who've made their way to, to Pakistan, uh, when there are challenges with uh, things like uh, uh, exit visas that differ, uh, the requirements for which differ based on how you enter the country, when you enter the country, uh, and what mode of transportation in some instances you use to enter the country. Uh, whatever challenges there are, we're going to continue to do what we can to eliminate them. Uh, I do want to share that we're seeing a little bit of progress with more uh, applications being advanced. No, no landings uh, in Canada yet. But when I start to see the application process move for these family members, it's a really, really encouraging thing for me. We've now seen um, more than 200 of the, uh, the family members have passed both the eligibility and security checks uh, and are well advanced in their application at this stage. And another 150 who are now through the eligibility phase. Uh, we expect at the end of this, uh, there could be uh, in the range of 5,000 extended family members who will be reunited uh, with the hundreds of interpreters who were resettled back in 2009 and 2012. Uh, it, this issue has my full attention. They meet with our office. Uh, virtually every week and uh, have had a couple of meetings with me and I, I've invited further conversation to make sure they know that regardless of the level of challenges, uh, this is on my radar as a top priority and I'm not going to stop until we're able to bring them. Sean Fraser, thank you so much for your time tonight. Much appreciated. A pleasure as always. Thank you so much, Ben, for having me.